We are the paradoxical ape. Bipedal, naked, large-brained. Long the master of fire, tools, and language, but still trying to understand ourselves. Aware that death is inevitable, yet filled with optimism. We grow up slowly. We hand down knowledge. We empathize and deceive. We shape the future from our shared understanding of the past. Carta brings together experts from diverse disciplines to exchange insights on who we are and how we got here. An exploration made possible by the generosity of humans like you. If you go to Nicaragua today, you can see these deaf children hanging out in their school playground using a rich natural sign language to communicate. And 40 years ago, this language didn't exist. 40 years ago, deaf children in Nicaragua, children just like these kids, didn't have the ability to communicate effortlessly with one another like they do. So how did their language, how did this language get into the hands of these children? Um, if we think about that, we have to really think about where does any language come from? Where does a language come from? Language is really central to human nature. It's, it's universal. Not every community has writing or numbers or even the wheel, but every community, every human community has a language. And language, it, it's not something that we've discovered out there in the world. It, they, languages come from us. They're product of humans connecting and interacting in a social network generation after generation. So to see where this language came from, I'm going to take you on a little journey and retrace the path of Nicaraguan Sign Language up to the present day. When these children arrived at school five years ago, uh, there were already about 1,200 deaf native users of Nicaraguan Sign Language. And, and there were hundreds of kids older than them uh, using this language around them in their school. And, and these children learned it from interacting with them. Now, if we want to know what those hundreds of kids who were older than that first, that current day generation of children, um, uh, what they looked like, we can look at the kids who were teenagers at the time when they entered. So this first group here um, entered the school in the mid-1990s. And at that time, there were about 800 signers of Nicaraguan Sign Language. And um, 
200 of them were at the school at any time. And, um, it, you know, you can see that this is, it's a fast, it's fluent, they can talk about the non-here and now. This is a natural human language that's used for what human languages are used for. Um, and if we want to know where they got their language from, we can retrace the steps of the language further um, back when these kids were four and five years old um, and, and ask, you know, who were the teenagers then when they arrived at the school? And so we can look at the people who were, you know, 10 years older than them. Um, when these guys, uh, these are the, the cohort that arrived um, in the... 1980s. So um, when they arrived, there were about 400 signers of Nicaraguan Sign Language, again, 200 at the school. And, and you may be able, if you have an eye for it, you may be able to see how, as we're going further and further back, the language is a little bit more deliberate, um, the feedback is a little more explicit, and the signs are bigger and and more symmetrical, there are more two-handed signs. There are lots of differences like that, and my, a lot of the work I do is to try and quantify what those differences are. But um, if you wanted to know, uh, you know who they got their language from, sort of to continue this um, retracing of the steps, uh, when they arrived at the school, the older people were these people who are um, 44, five to 50 years old today. And when these people were four and five years old in the 1970s, and they first came to the school, uh, there were no signers of Nicaraguan Sign Language. And, 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 and this is where we reach sort of the end of our retracing. Nobody taught these people to sign. The teachers at the school used Spanish, which they couldn't hear. And, and so this is really where NSL begins with this cohort of, of 50 pioneers. They took the gestures and actions that they observed as their raw materials and wove them into a new language. So we have this incredible opportunity to see how languages are born and evolve and the role that language learners play in that evolution. And I'm going to start with the language of this earliest, first cohort of signers, and walk forward to the present day and start with the most fundamental pieces of the grammar that every language has, the structure of the simple statement. So arguments and predicates. Um, how do you show who's doing what to whom? So in English, for example, we use word order to do this. So if you take a sentence like a man taps a woman and you change the order of the words, a woman taps a man, you change who's doing the tapping and who gets tapped. Now, other languages might stick inflectional endings on the end of the verbs, or even on the nouns to show which person is the tapper and which is the tappy. And to figure this out, my colleagues and I use, we use nonverbal materials to elicit sentences that can compare uh, these different aspects of the sentence. So I'll show you how different signers respond to stimuli like these. Um, so an event like this giving event or this tapping event. Um, and here's what the first cohort sentences look like. They have a very strict noun-verb-noun-verb word order. So to say that a woman taps a man, you've got woman tap and man tapped. And here's what this looks like when a first cohort signer signs it. So I want you to see how um, he produces that noun-verb-noun-verb -noun -verb order, first signing who tapped, and um, his sign for woman, which is produced like this. 
and who is tapped, um, his sign for man. Um, so he's going to sign these nouns, man and woman, and in a neutral area in front of his chest. And, and note that there's this movement in the verbs away from and toward the body in a way that can reflect sort of iconically the way that movement happens in the world. But they're centered in the signer's body. He keeps his body centered and neutral. And so um, here's what it looks like. Woman, tap, man, get tapped. Right? So this is all very nice and clear and orderly. But the interesting thing is that it wasn't reproduced this way in the next second cohort. So starting in about 1983 or 84, the second wave of kids who were coming in took this um, direction in which signs are produced and started giving that a job in the grammar. And what they did was start modifying where they produced their signs as a way of showing who did what to whom. So in this example, in the first panel, we have the words um, see and pay produced in this neutral area in front of the chest. And in the second panel, you can see we've, the, the signs have been modified so the direction is to the left. So if these signs were together in one sentence, produced by a second cohort signer, um, it would mean that that uh, same person was both seen and paid. Right? The, so these inflections started out with verbs like this. But soon after, in the mid-'80s, you can also start producing nouns in particular locations to link them to verbs. And more recently, you can even use it just a point to one location or another to refer to the person associated with that location. So now you're using these locations in space not to talk about where something happened, but to show who's involved. Um, so we'll see, here's an example of what a second cohort signer does. And you can see how these developments really change the basic structure of the sentence. Right? So um, here uh, is the woman giving to the man event. And you'll see we get the nouns now being produced in particular locations that correspond with the direction of movement in the verbs to show you what the object or recipient is. And, and notice that with the addition of uh, the spatial modification on the signs, there came in changes in the word order. So now the verbs move to the end of the sentence. So you're, you're going to see, first she actually talks about, remember there were three people in that, in that scene. So she starts talking about the woman on the right, just looking straight ahead. Then she touches her chest. That's a switch reference device. Um, and then you'll see she does woman, man, your nouns, and then give, receive, your verbs. Woman, look, and then self, woman, man, give, receive. Okay? And now, if we move to the third cohort, we're going to see the introduction of the space all you so use with points, linking the verbs with the doer and the done to. So this is an event where um, a woman pushes another woman, a woman in a black shirt and a woman in a green shirt. So he's going to index the, the uh, black shirt to his left and a uh, woman in green to the right. And then come the verbs. Remember, now they're at the end, push, be pushed. And finally, you'll see this verb respect at the end. And what I love about this example, what the respect sign here, is that even though respect isn't something that moves from one person to another and nor is telling, here we're going to see the space in the movement of the verb linking it to the nouns. So you can say green tells black that black should show some green, some respect, and you do all that with one word using the space. So black... Green, push, be pushed, respect. See? Okay. 
So we can measure this restructuring in many ways, and here's one. Um, if you plot how frequently points are used in that way that shows who rather than where, you get this pattern. So starting on the left with home signers, who are deaf people who were never exposed to a sign language, and then the first, second, and third cohorts um, you can see that they all use points to show where about the same amount. That's something that stayed pretty stable. But this nominal use, this use that shows who, that's linking the nouns with the verbs, this use really increased with the, the second and third cohorts of signers. So the question is why this change? And if children are so good at like, learning language and, and someone's already developed a perfectly good way to mark subjects and objects... You know, why didn't the second cohort just learn to sign it the same way that the first cohort had been doing it? Um, I mean, it's one thing to gradually drop whom from your English, but this is a total restructuring of the language here. So um, to, to answer that question, I think we really need to take seriously this idea of, of language as an organism. Language is an organism. So this isn't just a metaphor when we say this. It's... it's a language is an abstract thing. It's abstract, but it's, it's still real. It's, a, it's this bundle of structured material, and it, it's self-replicating. And, and we each live in a symbiotic relationship with our language, like the microbes in our gut. Like We can't survive without it, and it can't survive without us. And, and language changes and adapts to the humans that host it. So the social no network of people that, that learn it and pass it on are the environment in which language evolves. Now, the different versions of Nicaraguan sign language that we see signed by different age cohorts today represent this living record of the evolutionary path of the language. And, and so, you know, the way that I've been doing my work that I described is, you know, I look at this slice today, right? If we start with the 1970s in this figure over to the left, and then you have the first cohort coming in, and then in the 80s, the second cohort joins them, and then the third and fourth, you know, the, we, can, we can look at today at the differences between the cohorts, but we can't forget that the action, the moment of change is over there, right? It, it's... It's as we add each new wave, and that's where the language, that's when the language reproduces, right? So the first cohort builds the language as children in the 70s, and then they pass it on in the, to this next cohort in the 80s, and, and that second cohort acquires it with some fidelity, but they don't copy it exactly. And, and so on in the 90s and today, and, and we know these changes occurred when they're children, because the path is unidirectional, right? So stuff can get passed on to later cohorts, but not the other way. It doesn't go back. So things that adults initiate or learn, they would be the same for everyone. And there are things like that, right, that, that you see that are the same across all of the cohorts. But these core aspects of the grammar, how the sentence is structured, how you do agreement, how you show who's doing what to whom, those kinds of things, they're, they're changing just in that one direction. And they don't get passed on back up. So, um, so this chain from one to two then is where that where got reinterpreted as who. Um, so to take our question about why change it, we have to really think about how languages replicate, right? What's the mechanism that copies that code, the rules and patterns of Nicaraguan sign language, and passes it on to the next iteration of, of NSL, right? Because just because the organism that's, say, 1980s 
NSL, develop some cool characteristic, doesn't mean you get to pass it on for free. Um, if we don't have a really good understanding of the mechanism of reproduction, we'll, we'll start to see parallels between development and evolution that don't actually explain the nature of the change. So most of us are more familiar with Lamarck's second law here, um, this idea that adaptations made by an organism in response to its environment get inherited by its offspring, right? So the sons of the blacksmith must have bigger biceps, or the daughter of the giraffe gets a slightly longer neck than her mother started with. Um, But Lamarck also had this first law that um, much as we develop from simple cells to complex systems, that all organisms have a natural drive to complexify. And these are great ideas, but they don't work out, right? And they don't work out because now we know that reproduction doesn't work that way. You don't just pass down the useful stuff or the more complex stuff or the the exercised parts. And, And what we've learned from Darwin and since Darwin is that we have to pay attention to reproduction and selection processes, right? Organisms send along everything. They send out everything, not just the useful stuff, but they do it with variability and noise. So the environment is what's determining what will survive, right? So now we've got, we really have two evolutionary processes on really, really different timescales. So we've got human reproduction and selection on one hand and language reproduction and selection on the other. It's not that one recapitulates the other. It's each of them is evolving and is shaped by the processes of reproduction and selection. In human reproduction, we pass on what kind of patterns we can learn. And it may be very slowly and very long ago that more effective and more powerful pattern learning devices would prevail. But we all came into the world with brains that are product of that process. On the other hand, when languages reproduce, they send out all these accumulated symbols and patterns of combinations, but it's a blurry and limited signal, right? It's just the output of someone's own language, and it isn't copied perfectly. And in, in the process of selection, it's not the useful stuff, but the learnable parts of the language that survive. So... What we've got then is is this co-evolution of humans and their languages. Each of them is serving as the environment for the other. And each cannot survive without the other. So the thing is, though, that we don't don't set out to, to create languages, to grow languages, right? This isn't done with an intention to make a code. Humans grow languages because our social connection is so critical, Right? When we pass a language from one generation to the next, the goal isn't to, to, to create something or to organize your message. The, the goal is to connect, and the, the drive is a social one. Right? The, the idea is to get your message into someone else's mind and to understand what message someone else is sending to your mind. And in that process of communicating back and forth and actually forth and forth, That's how we weave the fabric of language with the machinery of our minds. So thank you very much.